welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, Google, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, and Peter. Episode 54, recorded on January 8th, 2020. GCP puts the Cloud Pod on ice. Good evening, Jonathan and Peter. Hey, Justin. Hey, Peter. Hello. It has uh, been actually a quiet week, so I think we, we were worried about the avalanche unloading uh, after the holidays, after our last episode recorded, but it's actually been a bit quiet. I think it's uh, maybe because CES is going on in Vegas, uh, and so they're a little busy and distracted, or Asia's still on vacation, or just giving up the ghost, I'm not really sure. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, do, I do suspect here, as we start heading into uh, a few more weeks into January, we'll start seeing quite a bit more news. But we do have some stuff, and uh, I have a story to tell you a little bit later, so we'll get into that. But first, uh, it is CES, like I mentioned, and Amazon is there. Uh, they have apparently a automotive exhibit uh, where they're highlighting uh, several different use cases of Amazon Web Services technologies involved with smart cars. So first it starts with the Alexa Auto SDK uh, and those capabilities that integrate into Amazon's machine learning. They have a Cadillac there with the customer journey, which uses zero light and AWS, uh, Rivian and Auto SDK integrations for their new electric truck. Uh, lots of smart home, garage capabilities integrating to the Amazon Pay, Fire TV, and the Ring system. Lots of IoT and ML use cases, and just overall a lot of really great practical use cases for machine learning and Amazon technologies. And I love these type of things because when you talk about AWS technology to uh, layman's peoples, <laughs> sometimes they don't really understand what you mean by QLDB and quantum ledgers and why that matters. Uh, but you know, these are actual real-world examples you can give to people uh, to help them understand what you do in the cloud <laughs> in layman's terms, which I really appreciate. So a uh, little interesting story here to kind of kick off the CES week. Uh, to check out on Amazon and their technology integrations with vehicles, uh, which is kind of neat. Yeah, I've, I've never made it to CES. Have either you two? Uh, I have never been. I thought I wanted to wanted to go, but I've been reinvent enough now that I know it. Hi, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> I manned a booth there once. Oh wow! Did you have booth babes or no? Uh, it was with HP, so there were um, assistants who were not booth babes, but very good at uh, getting leads into the machine way harder than it is today just by scanning people. And it's funny because actually like two years ago at reInvent, I saw one of them working one of the booths at reInvent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know much about CES. I knew that booth babes were a big problem. Uh, I, I appreciate that we don't get have booth babes at tech conferences because I think it's really unnecessary but for that purpose. But uh, you know, I, I always know that I saw pictures and stuff, of, you, know, you know, big massive TVs, people in too, too little clothing and lots and lots of people. That's all the pictures I ever see of CES. So. I'm kind of interested in the uh, in the automotive uh, SDK. I mean, it's, it's, it seems like a, an obvious choice to start implementing voice controls in vehicles. And I've obviously got a very mature voice recognition platform with Alexa, so it's, it seems like a, a no-brainer. Um, I actually have one of these Alexas for my car. Uh, really? That I, when they first opened up the beta program, I signed up for it, and they sent me one, and I have yet to put it in my car. So you see how on top of the game I am. I mean, it's, I guess be, if, unless it's built into the car, it's not like it can control anything, right? I mean, well, I guess it, it, it connects uh, to Bluetooth to your unit. So if you have Bluetooth in your your car unit, then it can connect to that. Then you can just say, "Hey, Dingus, you know, I need uh, drive me home or whatever." If you had an automated car, or you, you know, give me navigation directions, whatever. It sounds on paper to be really interesting and. And potentially valuable, but yeah, I think it needs to be really embedded into the car uh, to be really valuable. But for at least if you want, hey, dingus type capabilities, uh, that's available to well, you. Well, I mean, who doesn't have a smartphone anymore, though? Who who doesn't have a phone that can't respond to to uh, you know, hey Google or hey Siri or something already without it having to be a, a 
an extra thing. I don't know. Again, I, I think it's uh, it was a beta. I signed up. It was free. Well, I paid a small amount of money for it, but it was basically free to get into the beta, and I was curious. And so I think it's really a proof of concept to show you what you could do. It's not really a, meant to be a production-level thing. I, I think even today, if I want to go buy this device, I don't think I can buy it still. I think it's still So d does it have, access. like... Mobile connectivity built into it, or does it need like a Wi-Fi hotspot from the phone? It does use Wi-Fi hotspot from the phone, I believe. So it does connect to the phone, does connect to the car via Bluetooth. You know, I think eventually they're planning to have uh, you know, it embedded into your car. Then you're using whatever car connectivity capability your your vehicle has. Well, nothing can be worse than the Kia's uh, Uvo software. So <laughs> I would love to try it out. If you want to come borrow it, I can find it for you, and you are more than welcome to borrow it. <laughs> <laughs> it's at least more like a project that I'm probably going to hack something together with a Raspberry Pi and you know, plug it into the uh, diagnostics port and have it do cool stuff. You know? Hey, Alexa, turn on the emergency brake. <laughs> yeah, really. Your car's more smart anyways. You have all kinds of cool stuff in your car. Yes. A Tesla Model 3, so it has all the... All the automatic things that make it special. And they, but they only just added, um, I mean, it, it had some kind of basic voice recognition built into it for some really limited use cases um, until very recently. And now, now we actually have like a voice-enabled keyboard, which is fantastic, and a more, much more natural language processing for it. So I think it's, uh, uh, Alexa's still way ahead. I didn't, I, I've never actually been in your car where you've talked to your car, so I didn't think that was a thing. So <laughs> clearly. <laughs> well, I can't wait. I can't wait for that. I mean, I, I've, we talk about distracted driving with the phones, but I've, um, it's been, it's so distracting trying to use some of the new complex systems just to get to your radio in a new car. It's nuts. Especially, I think like Mercedes and BMW, while they were both going through their learning phases, I was driving other people's cars just like, this is insane. I can't even operate. Like, I had to pull over to do something safely. It should all be verbal commands at this point. Yeah, I mean, I've had verbal control for an Acura, and now I have it in my Volkswagen. Uh, and the amount of time I fight with it, trying to get it to just basic, understand basic things, um, I'm not ready for this world <laughs> that's coming forward. Uh, you know, basic, simple things like increase the temperature, it, it messes up half the time. So, yeah. But, uh, you know, it, it's all commodity technology that'll eventually get updated to be, to be much better. Maybe if it'll get Alexa integrated or, or something like that, it'll be much better long-term. So. I think what they really need is, is constant connectivity to the cloud so that they can update software constantly or even run, just not run software locally and run all the recognition someplace else and that way we can push out updates. Well, that's part of the reason why I chose a car with CarPlay because I felt it was future-proofing the technology of my car because it's all tied to my phone at that point and the phone uh, you know, is updated all the time and they update CarPlay and those updates come to my device because it's just really a dumb display to my phone. Awesome. So, Peter, I assume that you guys uh, might have some RDS databases at Foghorn. Yeah. Uh, and I, I'm going to guess that they were created probably before January 7th of 2020. Absolutely. Or, uh, yeah, so uh, you probably are going to need to go update some certificates. And uh, this is because Amazon uh, uses an intermediate CA certificate uh, that is expiring on uh, the fifth of March 5th, 2020. Uh, that is a five-year certificate. So it's in the CA certificate bundle 2015. Uh, they have a new CA certificate bundle, uh, CA 2019, that needs to be applied to your endpoints that are talking to RDS. So Amazon will handle your RDS update for uh, for you automatically between the February 5th and March 5th, uh, or you can do it manually by going into the console or by making an API call through the CLI to the new certificate. But when that happens, if you haven't updated your CA, that'll become an invalid connection. And if you are testing that connection that it's secure, 
uh, or doing any type of certificate validation, uh, that will fail. <laughs> so that'll be an outage. Yeah, and not only am I getting the warnings uh, for our RDS instances, I get them for about 30% of our customers' instances. So my inbox has been full. I imagine that yours has, mine has been as well, and my TAM has been telling me very adamantly, hey, hey, you have a plan for this, right? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I think the messaging around it was, uh, I know we got a message at the end of last year, October time, but it wasn't... Uh, a message it, came out while we were at reInvent on uh, December yeah. 3rd. I was, I was at that late, okay. <laughs> yes, the first one I saw was December 3rd, that uh, this was going to happen in the new year, and uh, I was at reInvent and not paying attention. So. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, I mean, I understand that certificates should only be valid for a fixed length of time, and five years is, is in, the, in the cloud world is really quite a long time, but, oh, what a chore this is going to be. I, I did have to laugh, though, when, when Jeff Barr <laughs> said that, uh, you know, just all we have to do is switch the certificate bundle uh, to gracefully shift you know, to the new CA. Yeah, his comment was you can install, you can install both bundles. So you can have the 2015 <laughs> bundle and the 2019 bundle, and then you either just let Amazon do the update when they want to during a maintenance window, or you uh, just wait till doomsday, then hope it all works. Yeah, I mean, if, yeah, if Gracefully is, is redeploying certificates to 200 accounts and rebuilding darker images and <laughs> redeploying pretty much every microservice we have, then yeah, I guess it's Graceful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's not the word I would have chosen. I feel like this is maybe a bit of an artifact because 2015, you know, predates ACM, uh, predates you know their own CA certificate. But I really feel like this is one where I wish they were using the Amazon root certificates to you know be the the trust the beginning of the trust tree. And then when they update these intermediate certificates, you know, your system would automatically go check with this root CA that's valid and then everything would be fine. Um, the requirement to install these intermediate CAs seems like a, a choice that was made at a different time that maybe they wouldn't have made if they were doing it today. Uh, but you know, it is interesting to me that there are a couple of regions that aren't impacted by this. So if you're in Hong Kong uh, or the Bahrain region or the China region, um, this isn't impacting you. And if you're using Amazon Aurora Serverless because it uses ACM uh, to manage certificate rotations, you don't have to do anything there either uh, because that one uses the Amazon certificate authority because <laughs> it's ACM. So you can see there's better ways they can do this. And so I'm hoping that they're getting some flack from their customers and some pushback that this is kind of ridiculous, and hopefully this will maybe be something that gets changed sometime in the future, because I think this is more painful than it really needs to be. Yeah, I really wish they'd, they'd had more than one intermediate certificate, because adding a new service like DocumentDB only 12 months ago, and then letting that certificate expire relatively quickly after customers have deployed this is, is, is really kind of painful. Yeah, so I've been, I've been thinking through several different scenarios, and none of them are good for different reasons, right? So I want to, like, well, maybe they should just be issuing a new intermediate CA every year. But then you have the complexity of you now have to manage that across all these RDS instances and all your Amazon nodes, and, like, which, which one did you choose when you built that server? You know, and that's kind of a hassle. Um, if you did one per service, then every time they release a new service, there'd be a new certificate bundle you'd have to install as well to use the new service. So that's kind of also problematic. There's really... By using a single certificate intermediate CA, they kind of get away from this need to redeploy new certificate bundles all the time, uh, and they can release new features and things like that being a problem for you to take adoption. But uh, it, it now bites you in 2019 when you're or 2020 when you're now updating all those certificates because the five-year certificate is about to expire. <laughs> so, kind of reminds me of uh, the. Uh, have you heard about people with the 2020 problem now? Uh, yeah, I had heard a little bit about that. That apparently the hack they did for Y2K <laughs> was just at twenty to the number, and that somehow magically fixed it for twenty years. And then they got well, the tech debt tech debt backlog, and then just never got done. 
it's yeah, instead of going from two digit to four digit, they interpreted um <laughs> zero zero to two zero as twenty two thousand to twenty twenty and two one to nine nine is nineteen twenty to nineteen ninety nine. That is uh, a that, that gives a, us twenty a, years. It's fine. Yeah, Plenty it's just, of time. It, it, just put it in the backlog. We'll get to it in twenty years. I guarantee it. No problem. Well, to be fair, it did just seem like yesterday. Uh. <laughs> I think I still have some stickers somewhere that, that say uh, you know the Y two K tested or something on it. It's pretty funny. I am a little concerned because the, the problem, you know, the thing about Y two K was that it, it got a lot of attention, it got a lot of investment, and a lot of COBOL engineers rehired uh, to do work out of retirement. Uh, you know, but the the Unix epoch time problem is is much worse, <laughs> and I, I worry about that one a little bit more because I feel like when we get closer to it, people are going to be like, "Oh, well, Y two K wasn't that bad. Everyone's just going to take care of it. It's no big deal." And I, I actually think it's much much worse than. The- so that's yeah. that's that's rolling over the thirty two bit. Um, yes, yeah, okay, thirty two bit uh, integer barrier. Okay, we have eighteen more years. Am I going to be retired yeah. by then? I don't know. I hope so. Uh, I I'm going to start playing the lottery more aggressively. AWS Private Link uh, is now supporting private DNS names for internal and third-party services. So this is uh, this was a bit of an issue previously. If you were using Private Link, uh, you would publish you know your net- independent network load balancer in your account to another account that potentially could be yours or you know a customer's account. Uh, but that would give a unique DNS name uh, that Amazon would use. Uh, so that may be problematic if your application is expecting you know, your DNS name. <laughs> and so now with this new capability, uh, you can use uh, your own DNS as, publish- as part of the publishing process of the private link service. Uh, so this allows you to now publish that into someone else's VPC or your VPCs and still use the same DNS um, as prior, uh, which is really nice. Uh, to get started, you need to specify the private DNS name uh, during the service configuration and confirm your ownership. And then after that, it's simple as checking enable private DNS in the endpoint config window. Uh, and then use the DNS name you specified for that access. Uh, this is available in all regions except for China. Hmm. I'm really happy about this. It was one of the feature requests I made very shortly after Private Link was released because I quickly realized that if you've got a web server sitting behind an NLB, this is before NLBs even uh, supported um, uh, SSL natively, then that, that certificate would, uh, would be specific to one domain name, usually a public-facing API, and any customers that are connected to it would would uh, have either certificate errors or would have to turn off validation for SSL, neither of which are uh, good options, or I guess the other option would be an NLB per customer endpoint, but that's that's even worse, I mean. Mm. <laughs> but um, we talked to the uh, the team who implemented this and that their challenge was really all about how to ensure that uh, somebody didn't kind of camp on another company's service to, to, you know, to stop you from um, intercepting traffic that was meant to go to Google.com or any any other endpoint, really. So it's it's good to see they finally came up with a solution to validate um, in a similar way uh, that ACM does, that you actually own the public domain. Yeah, I'm really happy about it. It's gonna it's gonna change a lot of things for us. Most large organizations run six or even more monitoring tools. Each of them uses a mixture of data collection techniques from technology providers, open source communities or custom integrations, and maintaining dozens of integrations across these tools can be a significant investment. Bloomadora introduces Bindplane, not another monitoring platform, but the industry's first monitoring integration as a service. Bindplane can gather data from over 150 technology data sources spanning your entire organization. 
remove or reduce your reliance on expensive monitoring and SIM solutions by sending log data to Google Stackdriver, New Relic or Azure Monitor. Check out the extensive list of integrations all provided at no additional cost. Learn more and sign up for a free trial by visiting bluemedora.com cloudpod. The link's available in our show notes, and as a bonus for CloudPod listeners, Blue Medora are offering Google Compute Platform credits to help get you started. Buy and plane. Seamlessly stream hybrid cloud and on-premise metric and log data. All right. Azure uh, has uh, been kind of asleep since Christmas, uh, but the, their cloud cost management team is super active with a recap of 2019 and a look ahead to 2020. Uh, they wanted to highlight all the amazing cost management things they've done for you uh, if you're using the Azure platform. Uh, and of course, they, you know, they hear that this is a numerous problem uh, from their customers, and uh, I rarely hear that. Uh, so it's interesting that they think it's a problem. So maybe they're trying to get ahead of it, or maybe it is a problem for somebody, just not anybody I know. Uh, and in 2019, they announced uh, several new programs and capabilities, including enterprise agreements, uh, unified master customer agreements and cloud solution providers, Azure cost management, uh, new portal capabilities, including charting, forecasting, integration into Power BI, ability to switch between currencies because everyone likes to see their, uh, you know, their Azure bill in yen. And then uh, <laughs> Power BI uh, has offered a hybrid benefit report that allow you to see costs on AWS and others. Uh, they did highlight some 2020 things that are coming down the road. Um, including ability to do sp- things like split shared costs, so like your support costs. Uh, if you want to split those up across your accounts, they'll be able to do that kind of peanut butter spread, as well as kind of a weighting, as well as additional markup languages and additional portal improvements and hybrid capabilities as they add in GCP, uh, in addition to AWS, give you that one single unified cost management dashboard. I did like their uh, the dashboard when, when they released that earlier this year. In fact, I think we talked about potentially using it to analyze uh, other clouds spend as well. It was, it was open enough. Yeah, so they, they support AWS today, so they can pull on your AWS spend and your Azure spend and show you one portal. <laughs> oh, that's uh, so great. And then they, uh, they are adding GCP in 2020. Sometime later in the year, you'll be able to do all of your costs across all your cloud providers. Uh, maybe not Oracle, but at least at least the big three. So. Oracle, huh? Oh, I have a story. We'll get there. <laughs> <laughs> all right, going on to Google. So you can now connect... Uh, your Redis uh, App Engine and Cloud Functions to your VPC. Uh, and so if you wish to access those resources from within your VPC with a serverless app, uh, you can now do that. Uh, and they, so that means they have finally caught up to AWS functionality, which is great. Always appreciate it when uh, Google cl- crosses that chasm. Uh, now available now for all uh, companies and regions. Uh, serverless VPC access lets you access virtual machines, cloud memory store, Redis instances, and other VPC resources with support for Cloud Run coming soon. Uh, and I explained to you how this works, but if you know how it works on AWS, you already know. Uh, it basically attaches an ENI into your VPC, and that is a connection that allows you to access all those managed services in a sweet, sweet way. Uh, there is a minimum and maximum bandwidth capability in their offering, which uh, between 200 and a th- a gigabit, uh, or, well, 1,000 megabits per second, uh, and that is a limit you should be aware of if you're going to be using this feature. Mm, it seems like something that, didn't deserve an announcement, and they should have just snuck in stealthily. And uh, pretend- <laughs> yeah, I think it would be better not to say anything. Yeah. Just like, oh yeah, it's, it's just a checkbox. It's been there forever. What do you mean? Yeah. What do you mean I couldn't connect these 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 different services together? It's kind of it's crazy. Well, maybe there was a bunch of maybe they know a bunch of uh, companies who said we're not moving to GCP until we get these features, and this is the way they're marketing it. I think it'd be easier just to have the salesperson call. Yeah. I would assume you could have connected to those services through the public route rather than privately before, but but now they're offering private connectivity. 
Yeah, you, you only you only connected to them publicly before. Google has also released a new archive class of storage. Uh, this is designed for long-term data retention uh, at a price point of starting at uh, 0 0.0012 cents per gigabyte per month or $1.23 per terabyte per month, because uh, it's easier than fractions of a penny to talk about. Uh, this is a little bit more expensive still than Glacier Deep Archive, uh, but also very competitive if you are in the Google Place. Uh, this is best suited for the data that needs to be stored for more than a year and accessed uh, less than a, once a year. Uh, I did look at the access data rights with uh, Jonathan earlier, and to access this data, the cost for just basic gets and put operations was over 100 times more expensive than the standard level. Uh, so in the standard level, it was uh, like half a penny per 10,000, and in the archive class, if you're accessing the data, it's 50 cents per 10,000. Wow. So it's a significant cost jump uh, if you need to access that data, so be aware of that before you go shove all your data into archive class storage. I mean, the reality is 50, I mean, it's, still, it's still very affordable. Oh, it's still very affordable. It's just don't, don't go put everything there. No, a millisecond latency is, is uh, way better than Glacier Deep Archive. So. Yeah, that's true. It is... Uh, it is Relatively quick compared to Glacier Deep Archive. Yeah. Oh, I wonder if AWS will respond kind of uh, with an improvement over over their offerings to kind of meet this. Uh, it's such a weird use case that I I mean, the requirement to store the data for more than a year that you only access once a year, where you would care that you can't access it within a millisecond, seems pretty low. <laughs> uh, so it's it's a little odd. I don't know that it's a use case enough customers have, but you know if it is, then I'm sure Amazon will do it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's for those really long tail type um, data sets where you have you any one piece of it you need to get to very quickly, but um, very small percentage of it as a whole is accessed on a day to day basis. Yeah, I was actually looking in um, in Workday earlier at the like tax documents and things for last year, stuff like that, and um, I, I guess that's that's a perfect use case because I mean, how many times do you download a, a W two? Like once, twice if you lost it the first time. Yeah. But but when you do go for it, you do want it to be within a reasonable time and not four hours. So it, it's uh, it's pretty cool. But it's very competitive price wise and storage like this is something which is really easy for you to move to another cloud provider. So we may find people using Google for storage, of, you know, for this deep archive service, but other other clouds for the, their compute. It's mm. very possible. I mean, that's the use case you see some customers doing with GKE today, right? They're using GKE for their compute level stuff, but all their data storage is in S3. Yeah. Uh, because S3 had a better solution to that for a while, and now, now Google's is catching up, and so maybe they make that pivot. But uh, moving on to our last Google story, uh, they have uh, wanted to remind you that Google Cloud Next is coming up very quickly here in April. Uh, they happen to put it on my birthday, so uh, I will be at Google Cloud Next, hopefully, uh, on the 7th for my birthday. So I will celebrate uh, there at the uh, event. <laughs> uh, but this is April 6th through the 8th uh, in San Francisco at uh, Moscone once again. Uh, it costs you uh, $16.99 unless you register uh, before February 29th with uh, a code that's going to be in the show notes that you'll receive $500 off your full ticket. So I'll bring your ticket down to uh, about $1,200. Uh, so do take advantage of that if you're interested in going to Google Cloud Next. Uh, get on, on that before February 29th comes and goes as you will not get a discount uh, as good as that one. Uh, as you progress through the year. Or try to talk to your sales rep and see if you can get some, some free ones, uh, which you might be able to do. Uh, Google Cloud Next, uh, of course, is an area to bring your global community of leaders, developers, influencers, and more to help you get inspired. And they highlight several things that you will learn or be able to uh, ask while you're there. Uh, a little of them are a little basic, like uh, how and when should I migrate my VMs? <laughs> or how can I develop apps once and deploy on any cloud? Uh, so there are definitely some interesting questions. Uh, I'm pretty sure that if you are going to Google Cloud Next, you probably are not asking how and when should I migrate my VM, but maybe looking for a little bit more 
But uh, definitely, uh, I went last year. Uh, it was a great event. I recommend it for those uh, who are in the Google Cloud space. All right. I'll probably be there. I assume you will. You were there last year, I think. Yeah. Uh, we, we met up at one point. And uh, we'll try to get Jonathan there this year, too. Hey, everyone. Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the cloud pod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008, they are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod foghorn the promise of cloud delivered um so you know when we put together the cloud pod show uh i get a bunch of rss feeds uh that you can also look at in the uh, slack channel for private slack channel and go to the, the right rooms uh but you know one of the feeds that we get is from oracle and so occasionally oracle will announce something and I look at it, and sometimes I'll include it in the show notes, sometimes I won't. Uh, most of it's not really that interesting, but this one kind of caught my eye. And so um, I kind of went down a rat hole. I named the segment, Justin Does a Thing. <laughs> <laughs> and that thing is my adventures in Oracle Cloud. Uh, so the announcement, uh, to kind of set the stage here, uh, is cross-region boot volume backups for instant disaster recovery, migration, and expansion. A riveting headline. Uh, and Oracle is pleased to announce you can now copy boot volume backups of your compute instance between OCI regions. Uh, this is a great use case for DR and BCP uh, or migration and expansion. So going through this, it's you know pretty straightforward. You can take a, a EBS backup or a block volume, as they call them in Oracle Cloud, I learned, uh, and you can do a backup of it, and then you can tell that backup to go to a different region, and you can recover from it. So this this raises questions, as you all probably can think as you're listening to this. Can I not do non-boot volumes? <laughs> or, or were boot volumes just not available before and I could do other volumes? And, of course, the article doesn't explain that to me. So the answer to that question is I have to go figure it out. So you know, it happens to be in this article, if you click on the link, that they will give you a $300 credit uh, to go try this. Plus, you know, Oracle has a really great free tier. So I was like, well, it's time to go sign up for the CloudPod Oracle account. Uh, as we should all have one, <laughs> to go do these type of experiments. And so I, uh, I headed on over to the Oracle Cloud website, uh, which I had never really been to uh, since Oracle Cloud World uh, that I was at last year. And uh, you know, I go through the form, fill out the information, you know, the CloudPod, myself, uh, here's my you know, information. You need to add a credit card, so if you go beyond the free tier, uh, we have a way to charge you, which I was a little bit skeptical about giving my credit card to Oracle, <laughs> which is for good reason. Uh, and, you know, so I hit the button, put my credit card information in, and comes up and says, uh, session expired. You're oh. out of luck. <laughs> and I go, well, that's unfortunate. Uh, I wonder if my, my credit limit on my card to card is not large enough, you know, because I don't have a billion-dollar credit limit. I'm, I'm sure that that was a flag to Oracle that I can't, I shouldn't really be buying this product. You forgot to put your lawyer's name on the application. That, that's part of it, too. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, there's a chat button, chat with, chat with an agent. And I'm like, well, that'd be great. I, I would love to chat with somebody. Maybe they can tell me what I'm doing wrong or if there's a problem and I should try back later. So I, I click the chat button. It says you'll be able to talk to an agent in two minutes. And I'm like, well, perfect. That's not too bad. It's pretty good support. Uh, two minutes comes and goes, and it sends me to a message saying, there's no agent available. Would you like to leave a message <laughs> for them to email you back about your problem? 
And you fill out that form and you hit submit, and it dumps you out of the web page completely, losing all of your form information and all of your entry data. So then, of course, being a great CloudPod host that I am, I go to Twitter and I complain. <laughs> <laughs> and I had some build Oracle, and and actually the Oracle Twitter support is pretty quick. Uh, within about 25 minutes, uh, someone had messaged me back and saying, "Hey, it should be fixed now. You should try it again." Uh, and so when I arrived home from my office, uh, I tried it again, and I was successfully granted access to the wonderful, amazing world of Oracle Cloud, uh, as they did accept my credit card at that point. So apparently, I was put on the whitelist or. Or something else. They said, uh, "Yeah, you should probably let that guy in." Ah, they blacklisted you after what we said about them last year, probably. I mean, it's possible. <laughs> it's definitely possible. You know, like a year or two ago, I tried to sign up for an account, and uh, they said, "Check your email for login information." And in the email was something like, uh, "Your email address is a personal email address. Please reply from a company oh, address that's right. so sales rep can contact you." Yeah, that's right. No, no Yahoo addresses. <laughs> like I can't. I can't. No Gmail addresses. I I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I use my, my CloudPod email address, so I didn't have that problem. But I could see why that would potentially be a blocker. Um, you know, so With a credit card, I, why? <laughs> well, you still have to give them a credit card. I mean, like that's that's standard cloud access. But uh, no, that's what I'm saying is if you already gave them a credit card. Oh yeah, why would they care about you being a personal email account or, yeah. or a work email account? That is a little weird. Uh, you know, I now have access to the wonderful world of Oracle Cloud, and I. And I selected US West Phoenix as my region, uh, which I have now locked into forever. I will, it'll always be my one and only free tier region. Uh, so if I want to put any free Oracle databases in Europe, I am out of luck. I'll have to pay for those. Uh, <laughs> but I can put my one eighth of a processor uh, database into uh, Phoenix region, and I can, I can go to town. So uh, the first couple comments here, now that I'm in this Oracle cloud, and I have pulled up the console for myself here. I know you can't see this, but uh, this console is special. <laughs> it's clearly designed by someone who used to work at Sun. Oh, no. <laughs> it, is, it, is, it is so hardware-centric uh, that I was, kind of, I was kind of blown away. Like, there's no, there's really, like, there's a, definitely a concept of, like, platform as a service here. There's sort of a concept of cloud concepts. But for the most part, it's, like, compute, block storage, object storage, file storage, networking. Like, that's the top-level menu of core infrastructure. And then the next section is database, which starts with bare metal, VM and XData databases, and then into the autonomous data warehouse, et cetera. So, you know, looking at this, you're just like, wow, this is, you know, an interesting design choice. It is very, very much focused on someone who does with hardware. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this is our, you know, my all the all the former compute team people I've ever had employed to me, all my VMware buddies, uh, my networking friends, they would love this console because they would know exactly where to go, no questions asked. Unlike the Azure console where you spend 12 hours just trying to find VPCs. Uh, so <laughs> I'm like, I'm going to create an instance. So you, know, you go to instances. Uh, you then realize that this console is designed for a computer that's probably a 5K monitor, probably one of those new Apple XDR monitors because everything is big and blocky <laughs> <laughs> and massive size. And uh, you know, clicking on through the instance process, it's when you go create the new instance, uh, you create it, you said, you know, I want this much disk space. I, want, you know, I, well, I only want this much disk space on my boot volume, by the way. Uh, and I want you know this number of CPUs and memory and all that kind of stuff. Very typical, uh, but you can't actually add more boot. You can't add more volumes at creation time. <laughs> oh no! It's not. It's not part of the wizard. Uh, it might be part of the CLI, and, I, and to be perfectly fair, um, I did not try anything with the CLI. This is all go through the GUI, and so you know that's sometimes problematic. Uh, but you know it has the basic things. But it automatically created for me a, a subnet and the network and all kinds of stuff. I have no idea what that looks like because I couldn't figure it out. And then they say you know you need to choose an SSH key or paste an SSH key into it. 
which is fun on a Mac because you can't just hit a choose files option to get to an SSH key because it's in a hidden directory, uh, which they hadn't really thought about, <laughs> apparently. Um, but anyways, so long story short, I get, a, I get a server up and running. And then I'm like, well, I, I, I want to do a snapshot of it to try out this replication feature that I, I'm trying to answer this question for you guys because you're my listeners and I care. Um, <laughs> so you, you create the snapshot. There, the, the menu that's in the, in the, the wiki article doesn't, doesn't actually exist. <laughs> it doesn't, doesn't, <laughs> there's supposed to be a button that says replicate snapshot to other region. That, that button doesn't exist for me. Now, my, my first thought was, well, maybe it's because I, I, I'm on a trial account. But I gave him a credit card, and I have $300 credit. So I'm, I'm sort of like a little bit better than a free trial account. I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit higher up. Um, so then I'm like, well, let me go, let me, let me go try the other part of this project, which is to go figure out how to add cloud block storage to this, uh, and then go from there. And so I have to go to the other menu, which is in the storage menu, to then go create a, blo a block object device. <laughs> so I go create that, which uh, you know is 50 gig drive is the minimum size I can do for that drive, 50 gigs. Wow, uh, <laughs> is that in the free tier? Hey. Uh, it is in the free tier. So I, a maximum I can do 100 gigs for the free tier. Oh wow, okay. In, in block, so that's fine. But that means I can only create two of them at minimum size. All right. <laughs> Because uh, you can't go, I tried to do like just 20 gigs because I didn't need a lot of space, but you can't do that. It's 50 gigs or, or nothing. Uh, so it creates that in a different screen. Now, one of the things I didn't mention, when you create the instance and you create the volume, it sits there and it tells you that it's creating the thing, but it doesn't actually use Ajax or anything to like refresh the page as you're waiting. <laughs> and there's no refresh button on this page. So the only way to refresh this page to see the status of my instance is to actually hit refresh of the entire web page. Command R. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> which is super awesome. Uh, so you know, my disk finally attached. You know, it finally completes, and there's a small little dialog that says, um, you know, if you want to make this drive part of your Linux instance, and you want to add it to FS tab, you need to make sure you add no boot and uh, one other command line parameter, which basically says, you know, if if the drive. And I'm like, well, that's a little weird. Why would that be a, a parameter? And then I actually like look into the documentation of how I had to now attach this block object item to my server, and it's iSCSI. <laughs> so they have a whole set of commands I have to run to attach this iSCSI volume to my instance. And then I have, because it's iSCSI, and in the iSCSI driver will start up after my Linux box is already up and running, I potentially could make an unbootable Linux box if I don't properly put it into FS tab. <laughs> nice. Wow. Uh, which, which is a little bit of a painful experience. And again, as a Sun engineer, Makes perfect sense to me because mm. you know I'm a hardware guy and like I understand that. But as a cloud developer, that's a that's a bad experience. Like I don't think I would. I don't know that a developer would necessarily understand what they're talking about, what FS tab is, or any of that. Uh, and there's really not really a lot of good documentation on their site or good links to doc to more documentation to explain how to actually do it in Oracle Linux. Uh, so I had to do some research on some of that. But uh, you know. But anyways. Uh, so again, I have this volume, I attach it to the Linux box, I go use my SSH key, I connect to my server, I mount it to iSCSI, I put it into FS tab, I test a reboot, all that stuff to see that works. Works all really well. The, um, the graphical UI for metrics around monitoring is actually kind of nice. Uh, they did a nice job on that. It's a little bit delayed in the refresh because, again, they didn't use Ajax <laughs> to refresh that data very quickly. And so uh, you would be like, well, I have just ran a really large stress test on that box. That, sh that CPU should be pegged. And then you realize it's behind by like 12 seconds. And then it'll like 
sort of refresh. <laughs> and all of a sudden, if you see your CPU go from nothing to 100%, which is kind of cool. Uh, it could be a little bit more real time in my experience. Uh, but again, I create a snapshot of my, my new object block. And again, that one also does not say that I have um, yeah, the ability to replicate that to another region. So now I'm thinking, uh, well, no, I can't. I, obviously, I can't replicate a block object to any region, uh, apparently at all. And this entire article is a lie. Uh, which can't possibly be true, right? Uh, and it's not. <laughs> I did finally figure out that you have to go to the console list, and you have to go manager regions, and you have to add a second region. Oh, well, that's ah. good. Uh, actually, no, I, I, to be fair, I like that. I like that you have to enable a second region deliberately. I do, I do like the enabling a second region. Now, I enable the second region, and I go back into the object that I want to replicate. Now, in the boot and in the extended in the external block object, they now both have the box that exists in the documentation, which is great. And when you click into that box, it opens up and it says, "If you don't see the region that you're looking for, click this button to go manage your regions," <laughs> <laughs> which only works if you've already enabled another region, which if you're using the free tier, you haven't done. So th there's a bit of a challenge in how this works. Uh, so it, again, it was a fun time, uh, but I can confirm for both of you that, uh, and our listeners that, uh, yes, you can apparently used to be able to only replicate uh, object block storage that you attach to your instance via iSCSI to other regions. And now you can now do your boot volume. That's really interesting. So you're welcome. You now have an active, actual DR solution inside Oracle. Oh, yeah. If well, you are doing this, so you can make you fun. Of, you can make fun of it, but we should all start getting used to it because that is the next gen cloud. <laughs> it is. It is. <laughs> you, you can make fun of it as much as you like, but I actually wish um, Amazon EBS would let you attach via iSCSI. I think that's fine. I I have no issue with really any of this other than. It's not very dev friendly. Um, I don't mind this iSCSI. Yeah. But it, nowhere in the creation process does it indicate to you that you're creating an iSCSI volume so that this is something you'd have to do. Hmm. That's interesting. Until you, until you go back into the... So the workflow to find that, that set of instructions, because I was like, well, I don't... Like, how do I mount this? Because like, what's the endpoints and all that for the iSCSI endpoint? Because you have to you know, tell where the iSCSI server is. Um, so you had to go back into the block object to drive. You have to click on to, into it, and then it gives you a bunch of metrics about it and, and all that kind of stuff. And then there's like up in the right-hand corner, kind of where like the help is. There's a little like connect Linux connection uh, instructions, and then you click into there, and you get all the commands, and you can copy paste the commands into your SSH from there. Mm. Um, but you know, it, it's definitely one of those areas where like, so maybe this whole idea of not having um, you know Oracle have access to your servers is not so great because an agent could do this for me <laughs> without me having to think about it and make this a little bit easier. Uh, but that would guys, violate the whole idea of that Oracle can't touch your data. Yeah. I mean, I, I presume that even the boot volume is actually iSCSI, but it's mounted by the hypervisor. And I would imagine the same thing happens with, uh, with the EBS volumes with AWS, although they may not use iSCSI. They probably use something more proprietary. But, uh, the, of I'm course, sure. the, the, the big problem with this is now your disk uh, I.O. is sharing the same um, network connection as all the rest of your I.O., <laughs> and it is yes, and so that is that is actually something you can do. You can add uh, additional network cards to servers. I noticed, uh, which is probably very much tied to the ability to address that particular problem. Yeah. Um, and so there's there's definitely a lot of interesting things, and uh, you know it was definitely good to see they have auto scaling, they have pooling, they have you know placement group concepts already in place. And but overall, it uh, you know I, well I think it's a good it's a good starting place. It definitely shows 
how far they are <laughs> away from the bigger players and, and why they've thought for very much from an infrastructure oracle perspective how to solve a lot of problems. They haven't thought about it from you know, how to just make the simple APIs, I think. And that's, that's interesting. But I do agree with you. I think an iSCSI option would be nice on Amazon. I don't mind that this is iSCSI. I just wish that it wasn't quite so opaque as you went through the process that that's what you were doing. <laughs> And then the fact that you know they throw all these warnings up about your FS tab and all these things. Again, if you had an Oracle agent that talked to the cloud APIs, it could know that, and it could actually you could automatically have it do these things with FS tab and different things to make sure you don't run into that problem. Because now you're relying on a dev person who's setting up this instance to actually do it correctly, which I think is risky. Yeah, it'd be super easy to have an agent that starts on boot and queries the metadata of the instance and says, "Hey, what do I need to mount?" and mounts it for you instead of having to uh, mess around with the FS tab file. So. Mm. There you go. We got a potential uh, a potential product you can sell to it's Oracle right there. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so yeah, so that's a uh, that's Justin does something. Uh, that was it was fun. I enjoyed myself. Uh, you know, my my foibles. I, I'm sure that the the initial getting signed up for the account was just an unfortunate timing incident where they were having some problem with their payment gateway. So, you know, those things happen. Like, you know, hug ops. <laughs> uh, but uh, you know, it, it, going through the rest of it and you know trying to follow along with the documentation and, and this very clear guideline of there should be a button that says "copy to this other region." Um, was a bit uh, was a bit opaque. Um, I did I did notice also that they have like backup schedules. So Oracle gives you three predefined um, backup types. So they call them bronze, silver, and platinum, I believe, uh, with different you know snapshot retention schedules. That's already built into it. You can create custom versions of those. Um, so if you want a snapshot every twenty minutes, you can set that up. Or ever you know, and then also included the roll off of those snapshots. So not only did it include the creation, I want a snapshot every day. Plus a full on the weekends. I want to only have five of the fulls, and I only want to have ten of the snapshots. You know, so it, it gives you a lot of flexibility, which is great. And if that all is tied back to code that actually does things, that's kind of nice. Because how many years did it take for Amazon Backup to become a thing? Yeah, yeah, about thirteen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so I mean, again, I think you know, looking at the console, looking at what the capabilities are, seeing how they, you know, how they did this, it's very clear that Sun. Uh, history has a lot of impact in how they design Oracle Cloud, which is good, which means you're getting a really high-class hardware underlying it. You're getting really solid networking and storage concepts behind it. Um, I don't think the developer experience is quite where it needs to be, but uh, it's good to see what's coming along. I'll, I have this free account. I've, apparently, I've, I spent a penny. I'm not sure where that penny went in my trial, uh, you know, but it probably when I activated the other region to do the test, because that's not part of my free region, mm. uh, I, and I have a the network. So I'll keep an eye on my bill, because I don't want to pay for anything. I don't have to, uh, but overall, uh, it was a fun time. And uh, if you have any curiosity, you can get your free tier. Just don't enable that at second region. Once you do, you might have some additional uh, spend. All right, Peter, take us into the lightning round after that riveting Oracle story. This is going to be lightning, lightning fast, short, lightning, lightning round. Here we go. I ended up introducing AWS Systems Manager Change Calendar to uh, get your change windows. Going. I knew they were going to do this three weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was going to I was going to have it mentioned at Christmas time, but we were in the change freeze. So. Awesome. <laughs> Amazon Comprehend launches multi-label custom classification. Uh, so, I mean, again, if you want to know that your medical issues were you know classified as cancer, cancer, and cancer, then you're good to go <laughs> with a new capability. Amazon SES now lets you use your existing IP address ranges to send mail. Who want oh, man, that means I have to get use my own IPs to get blacklisted? <laughs> it was so much better to blacklist Amazon's. Curse you. <laughs> <laughs> 
Speaking of a blacklisting, you should uh, sign up for the newsletter if you haven't done so. <laughs> and get on to our CloudPod newsletter, which is actually really great. Not, not, not blacklist-worthy, but... Yeah. <laughs> Amazon QuickSight launches new analytical functions, Athena Workgroup, and Presto VPC and connector Alexam, support. No one uses QuickSight. I'm going to give it another try there, Justin. <laughs> I'm going to give it another try. Maybe <laughs> it it's might time. be time. You never know. I, th- I, I actually I want to try it as yeah. well. I even downloaded the QuickSight app on my phone, and I was all excited, and then I've yet to get to it. <laughs> even in, even in the, the doldrums of the last two weeks of December where I had all this free time to do other things, and I, I worked on self-assessments and reviews instead of doing that. So, <laughs> I mean, if you look at the analytical functions that they support now. They do a lot. They do. I would love to see somebody's use case where they need natural logarithms uh, or square roots of, of uh, metrics data. So, yeah. hmm, interesting. Somebody's, somebody obviously has a, a fantastic use case otherwise. And finally, Amazon Translate introduces batch translation. As long as it can help me understand Larry Ellison's keynote every year, I'm happy. What are we translating from? To English. Gibberish. Gibberish. <laughs> well done. Well done. I, don't, I, I can't top that. Uh, the, race to the, the race to the blacklisted IP was going to have it until the... Uh, the gibberish, yeah. The, yeah, the king got put down. Excellent. The that gibberish. was impressive. Yes. Yes, for the first time in... Jonathan is ahead. Ever. Ever, ever I think. <laughs> ever, ever. One to zero, Jonathan. I have infinitely more points than you do this year. <laughs> Well, thank you, guys. It's been another great week here at the CloudPod, and we will be back next week with hopefully uh, Asher has woken up by then and given us something interesting to talk about. All right. See you both next week. Cool. See ya. See you then. And that is The Week in Cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting and Blue Medora. Check out our website, the home of the CloudPod, where you can join our newsletter, Slack team, send feedback, or ask questions at thecloudpod.net, or tweet us at hashtag the CloudPod. Mm-hmm.